This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We've been talking about the end times. We've been talking about the... We're in the book of Revelation right now, and we've been talking about God's report card to his church. And pretty much the most important aspect in the book of Revelation is chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 4 and following talks about things that are going to happen after we're gone. It's interesting. It's compelling. It's, it's, it's amazing. We see Christ exalted over and over again. But when it comes to just our time together, when it comes to how we live... The chapters 2 and 3 pretty much sum it up for us. They're basically God's letter to each of us, to his church, on what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of, what he says good about the church and about our lives, and what he doesn't. Um, as I shared with you last week, you know, God has given us some epistles, some letters that he writes to us to let us know how life is in his kingdom, what life was like when his son walked on the earth, we have, of course, the Gospel and the Acts. We have Paul's letters, and we have the general epistles. And then, of course, we've got Jesus' epistles here in the book of Revelation. We have his letter to Ephesus and Smyrna. Smyrna is the one we're going to look at today. Pergamos and Thyatira. We have the one in Sardis, which is really going to, I think, challenge your faith when we get to it, because that era deals with the Reformation, where we our faith was birthed where we took it back of salvation by faith through grace alone. And then it talks about the Philadelphia church age, which is the church age of the great missionary movement and the great love of God. And all the classic books that were written uh, in the last 300 years were written during that age. It's the day of Moody and Spurgeon and many of those people. And then, of course, there's the letter to the church at Laodicea. It's where we live. It's the age in which we're at right now. The amazing thing about this is of these seven letters... You have two of them that the Lord says nothing bad about. Nothing bad at all. He only commends them. He only blesses them. He only tells us to emulate them. And that is Smyrna and that is Philadelphia. Smyrna we're going to look at today. We have a number of the letters where the Lord says something good about and something bad about. Hey, I commend you for this, but I have this against you. That's the letter of Ephesus that we looked at last week, Pergamos and Thyatira. There are two letters that the Lord says nothing good about. Nothing. And it's exactly where we live. The letter to Sardis and the letter to Laodicea. Sardis, we, we talk about the Reformation. We talk about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. We talk about how there was, you know, we're, we're Protestant. We're Protestants because we were protesting the, you know, the abuses of the Catholic Church, and so we set up church the way we thought Christ wanted it to be, and yet he says nothing good about that age. And then we live in the era of the age of the of Laodicea, where he also says nothing good about. Which means as Christians living in the last 2,000 years of Christendom, we are the ones that should be most concerned and most pitied. 
because we have this mindset that we think we're doing things correctly because that's just what we've been taught. But when you look at Jesus' epistles, he sees things totally different. We're going to go through each of these letters, and we're going to basically give them a report card. We're going to see what the Lord says good about them and bad about them. We're going to emulate and try to copy and incorporate in our lives the things the Lord commends, but the things he rejects, we should also reject. As I shared with you last week, the outline of the entire book of Revelation is kind of summed up in Revelation 1, verse 19, where it says, write the things which you've seen, which is pretty much Revelation 1, and the things which are, which are currently going on, and the things which will take place after this. So here's the general outline. The things which you have seen is John's vision of Jesus on Patmos and in, in Revelation chapter 1, and then we're not going to really get into that because uh, we talked about that many years ago. The things which are is what we are talking about, the seven letters to the seven churches. These are letters that I want you to write, are letters that I am dictating to you to send to these seven churches for a reason and a purpose. And of course, the things that will take place after these things are chapter 4 through 22, which talks about the tribulation period. It talks about the battle of Armageddon. It talks about the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, which we will be talking about in time to come. But we're going to focus on the things which are the seven letters from Christ to his church. And the question that we always ask, because we're pragmatic believers who live in the Laodicean church age, is what's in it for me? I don't want to study it unless I get something out of it. What's in it for me? And there's four basic interpretations of these letters. The first is they were local churches, and they were letters sent to those local churches, the ones that he chose. He did not choose the church at Ephesus. He did not choose the, um, I'm sorry, he did not choose the church at Rome. He did not choose the church in, in Thessalonica. He did not choose the church in Galatia. He chose these particular churches, which were struggling with some local issues, which that letter addressed. And also, at the end of these letters, you will find the Lord says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not the church, but the churches, because it applies to all churches. Many churches find themselves on this continuum of fervency to apathy. It also is personal. In other words, God can speak to every one of you through every one of these letters and show you areas in your life that you're just like the thing God commends or the thing he condemns. But the most exciting part is the prophetic interpretation of this, because these letters lay out for us church history. They lay out for us what life has been like for the last 2,000 years. They tell us church history in advance, and if they were in any other order than they are right now, it simply wouldn't fit. And so you can see the church of Ephesus that we talked about last week deals with... Um, the early church from Pentecost of about the year 100. The church that we're going to look at today, the church of Smyrna, deals with the great persecutions that took place from about year 100 up to the Edict of Toleration or the Edict of Milan, where Constantine basically ended the Roman persecution. We're going to find the next letter to Pergamos deals with the marriage of the church and state together, which is exactly what happened after the Edict of Toleration. And there was great turmoil that went on in the church. One of the great one of the great, and we'll talk about this next week, but one of the great controversies that took place is what is a church supposed to do with believers who have apostatized their faith? 
There's a great persecution going on. People were paying for their faith and their faithfulness to Christ with their own blood. Yet there was a vast majority of Christians that went ahead and sacrificed to Caesar, went ahead and said that Caesar is God. They apostatized so they can live normal lives now. And then all of a sudden, when Constantine issued the Edict of Milan or the Edict of Toleration, and all the pressure was off, all these people wanted to come back into the church, and those that had remained faithful, the pure, were saying, no, wait a second. No, that you, you can't apostatize and come back. You can't deny and, and come back. And it was a huge problem the Church of Pergamos had that we'll talk more about next week. As I shared with you, all these letters follow the same design. They begin with the name of the church, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, right? And then there's a title of Christ that's being used. These things says the first and the last who is dead and came to life. And every one of these letters emphasizes a different title or description of Christ. Then you have the good news. Then you have the bad news or the rebuke. Then you have the exhortation. If it's good news, I'm exhorting you to continue that. If it's bad news, you better change. If it's good and bad news, he, he gives a different exhortation. Then you have a promise to the overcomer. And then, of course, there's the closing. And the closing is always the same. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And at the very first of these couple letters, you find a closing is listed before the promise to the overcomer, and the last four letters, you find that it's listed afterwards, and there's a reason for that. Uh, a really profound reason has to do with churches that, the church ages that will carry on into the tribulation time, or churches that will be raptured out of that. The church in Philadelphia, for example, is promised specifically the Lord will not allow them to go through the tribulation and trials that are going to affect the entire world because of their faith. Not so the church in Sardis, and not so the church in Laodicea. Let me just read last week's to you to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. This is the church in Ephesus. The name means desired one or darling, and here's what the Lord says. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, then, of course, we have the description of Christ. These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The good news. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. This is a discerning church. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. There's a satanic desire to infiltrate the church, like he has done today, to bring people in authority who claim to be apostles, which are not apostles. The church has discerned that they are liars and have stood against them. You have persevered and had patience. You have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Just like we do, right? Laboring to the point of weariness. We labor for our own selves, but I wonder how often we labor for the Lord. Good news. Bad news? Nevertheless, in spite of all of this, I have this against you. I hold this against you, that you have left your first love, that you have abandoned the fervency that I once had with you, that the passion and the love and the joy that you had just sitting in my presence is now gone, that you have substituted just one-on-one -on -one time with me, with things and with duty and with maybe church work that you have You've missed it. But your focus is on doctrine, which is very important, but not as important as devotion to Christ. 
You know, the disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to preach. Teach us how to teach. Teach us how to study your word and teach us how to go through declensions of, of Greek words and, and understand Hebrew nuances. Teach us how to evangelize. Teach never. Does the Lord teach us how to pray? Teach us how to communicate with you. Teach us how to talk to you and have you talk back with us. Even at the close of the first century, when people in this church still had first-hand knowledge of who Christ was, they were already slipping into doctrine and truth being more important than devotion to Christ. They were too busy about the business of the Lord, building the church and doing ministry, than they were about the Lord himself. I, um, I took that one right between the eyes because that's pretty much a lot of my life, that I spend a lot of my time doing good things to the excuse of doing the best thing. And the best thing is for me to sit in the presence of the Lord and worship him. I mean, I'm amazed at the life of, um, of George Mueller. I mean, George Mueller would get up like 4 o'clock in the morning and he would pray until noontime. How in the world, Mueller, can you pray till noontime? There's so much stuff that needs to be done. There are thousands of kids out here that need food, and you're managing these orphanages in multiple locations. And, and George Mueller said that if I don't spend three or four or five or six hours a day in prayer, this is just him, I can't accomplish anything during the day. That he finds that his day is far more productive by giving Lord the Lord the bulk of it than doing what we do, getting all the business stuff done first, and if there's any time left, then we devote it to the Lord and ask him to bless our efforts. The exhortation to the church at Ephesus. The Lord says, you need to go back to the beginning. You need to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, where you have substituted me for stuff, for church stuff, for ministry, for family, for anything. Repent and do the works at first, or else, and this is like a threat here, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And as I shared with you last week, the lampstand is not the light. The lampstand is the bearer of light. And so the Lord is telling us, being busy, being overwhelmed, being about the Lord's business instead of being about the Lord does not fly. But he gives them this caveat, the second good news here, and he says, but I have this, but you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I shared with you last week, this was a group, a sect that grew up in the first century that said there needs to be a division between church uh, and our clergy and laity, between the hired holy man and the congregation. And already then, what was happening was the church was becoming more of a business rather than a family. And so the Lord says, I hate them. We're going to find these guys creeping up uh, in the third and fourth letter too. I hate these guys. It's a family where we all have gifts and we're all together. And just because the pastor is the teaching pastor and he has a gift of teaching, that doesn't mean he does everything and you do nothing. That we all have gifts that we need to manifest. And, and what we've done in our society today is we've hired professionals to do the ministry. And so that we can just come as spectators. I don't have to teach my kids um, 
the Bible at home, what the scripture tells me to, to teach them why they're laying down and then rising up and as we're going along the way, because we've hired this guy with a master's degree that's really gifted, and he'll deal with my kids one hour a week on Sunday morning. And then I wonder why the impact of Christ is not strong enough to hold many of our kids in faith when they get to be teenagers and in their early 20s. It doesn't work that way. Closing promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. And then, of course, in the first couple letters, the promise of the overcomer is last, and I will share with you why that is shortly. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Again, note the order here. Prophetically, what this church is, it represents the apostolic church, the early church. is the only church that you, even talks about apostles. That shows that then it shows that even at the end of the first century, that close to Pentecost, the church was still in trouble. What it means for us is you cannot go back to the early church fathers and their writings or interpretation and hold them to be absolutely infallible because they're not. The only thing that is infallible is the Word of God. This time frame runs, as I shared with you last week, from about A.D. 30, the birth of the church, to about the close of the canon, or about year 100. Which brings us to the report card. The Lord said both good and bad things about the church in Ephesus. And so on our report card here, we've got an X on the good and an X on the bad. So there's some things I need to emulate and some things that I don't. I, I, I want the Lord to commend me for my patience and that uh, my discernment, and I can't put up with evil men in the church and outside of the church. And I found some of those who claim to be apostles, claim to hear from God, claim to have his voice, and, and we discern by the word of God that they're not, that I've had patience, and then I've labored to the point of weariness and exhaustion for him. But in doing so, I can't lose my first love. I can't be all about the ministry and not about him. Which brings us to Smyrna, which is the church we're going to look at today. This is a church that runs from about the year, a, a year 100 up to about 312, when all of a sudden the great persecution of the Roman Empire and persecution that uh, actually began with the Jews in the first century was abated, and all of a sudden the church got an opportunity to live like we do today, pretty much unmolested by the government. And when that happened, the fervency of the church tanked. Church at Smyrna had nothing bad to be said about it. The word Smyrna means suffering or death, and the Hebrew word, word for the word that's translated Smyrna in the... Um, uh, in the New Testament, means myrrh. Myrrh. God, I remember myrrh. Myrrh was one of the gifts that the Magi brought. Myrrh is this spice that is crushed, and when it's crushed and beat to a pulp, it all of a sudden elicits this sweet-smelling savior. Savor. If you remember correctly, the wise men came, and they gave gold, which represented Christ's kingliness and his royalty. They gave frankincense, which recognized his deity and his priesthood. And they gave myrrh, which talked about his suffering and his death. Even the name of this church is why the Lord chose this church and chose its second to fit in this prophetic timeline. It means death or suffering. Let's look at the good news here. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, and then we have the name of Christ here. 
These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. What does the Lord know about the church in Smyrna? I know your works. I know your faithfulness to me. I know your I know that that you see me as your master and your Lord. And you see your job and you see every other thing that you do in context of serving me first. I understand that. I, I see your works and I see your tribulation. I see the pain and suffering that you've been through. I see what it cost you to be a Christian in the time in which I placed you. And I see your poverty. But you think you're poor. And the Lord says, but you are rich. Oh, not rich. I mean, we don't have the best jobs. We don't, we don't have the best cars or the best homes. We're, we're living in apartment complexes, like 14 people to a, to a two bedroom apartment. We barely have enough money to eat. We can't go to the finest restaurants. The society says we're poor, but inside, spiritually, you are rich, he says. And then he says this. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but who are of the synagogue of Satan. What? I, I know the blasphemy, speaking against God himself, of people who say they are Jews, but they're not, or people who take the place of Jews, but don't. And God calls that blasphemy, and they say they're of the synagogue of Satan. If you'll study that phrase, you will find that that phrase means the church began to set aside Israel. Replacement theology began during this period with the writing of, of or some of the early church fathers. That all of a sudden the church began to say, I will appropriate the promises that belong to Israel to the church. I will say that I am a Jew, that, I, that those promises belong to me, and they're not. This was... This was begun during this church age in Smyrna, but it absolutely exploded in the church age of Sardis back during the, uh, the Reformation era. We as Protestants growing up in church, we've had history sanitized to us. The church has sanitized what, the, what uh, Martin Luther and some of the other ones really felt about the Jews because it doesn't really fit in our way of understanding. We only know that Martin Luther had this vision where the lightning struck and he gave his life to the Lord and all of a sudden he saw the indulgences of the church and he nailed his 95 thesis on the, the chapel door of Wittenberg to begin a debate and somebody took that and they, they printed it on the, the printing press who had now been, uh, had been established for about a hundred years and all of a sudden this, this pamphlet went out and there was this ground swell against the Catholic Church and Luther was now one of the leaders and, and Calvin and some of the others and, and we just take those guys and we honor them as like demagogues. But the reality is they also had a very dark side and one of the reasons why they had that dark side is that's why the Lord says nothing good about that church. <clears throat> Martin Luther wrote a book and the book was called On the Jews and Their Lies. You will not find that in the church history books about Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that there are seven things that should be done to the Jews. Here's what he says. First, we need to set fire to their synagogues and schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and, uh, the Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. The way that we respond as Christians is by burning down Jewish synagogues because as what happened in the church in Sardis coming to, um, 
to our Smyrna coming to full growth in a church in Sardis, we hate God's people because we have replaced them. Second, this is Martin Luther, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. We call this genocide today. Third, it's Martin Luther, I advise that their prayer books, their Talmudic writings in which, they, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on highways be abolished completely for the Jews. Why? For they have no business on the countryside. We want to keep them in the ghettos. Six, I advise that usury be prohibited to them. Matter of fact, we'll go one step further and then all cash and treasures of silver and gold be taken from them. We will confiscate their wealth. Seventh, I recommend putting a, fla a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into their hands of this young, strong Jews and Jewishness and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their brow to become our servants. But if we are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, children, servants, cattle, etc., let us then emulate the common sense of the other nations such as France and Spain and Bohemia and eject them forever from our country. Wow. Sounds like the Third Reich, doesn't it? Did it, ever, did it ever wonder why Hitler had no problem with the Lutheran Church in Germany when he came to power? He had no problem with the, the church pretty much at all because this anti-Semitism was so inbred in them, beginning with beginning in Smyrna, but especially in the church in Sardis, that it was just a natural thing. Everything Luther said to do to the Jews is exactly what the Third Reich did to them in the 30s. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. The good news. Well, what about the bad news, Lord? It was just, it was, the Jews were just hated people back then. They're hated people now. And the bad part about it is the Jews have always been God's people, not the church. We are grafted in as the, wine, as the wild vine. We are, we are not the apple of his eye. The Jews are, and we're actually brought into the fold to make them jealous. book of Hebrews talks about that. So, God, so, so Satan has always hated the Jews. And the sad part is, is when the church, because of replacement th theology, begins to hate them also. And that's what happened. I mean, Luther didn't invent this stuff. He just popularized this stuff. And if you remember correctly, one of the things the Lord says about the church in Sardis is, I do not find your works complete in God. I mean, they didn't go far enough. They didn't, they didn't set up a pure gospel. They saved salvation by faith through grace alone and stopped there. And the Lord says nothing good about that. But in Smyrna, we have good news. And the bad news for the church in Smyrna is nothing. Nothing. The Lord doesn't say anything bad about this suffering church, this church that, that is holding on to their faith in Christ as many of them are driven into the countryside, many of them are killed, many of them, tens of thousands of them were killed by the ten great Roman persecutions that took place at that time. He gives them an exhortation. He says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. What if the Lord told us that today? Church? Don't fear about those things you're about to suffer. 
What, we were not supposed to suffer because Joel Osteen and all the big guys out there tell us we have God's favor. That if I don't have a new car and a new house and perfect teeth and flawless complexion, that, that I'm not experiencing the fullness of God. In America, he's supposed to just give me stuff. I mean, what do you mean suffer? Suffer only happens for Christians in Haiti and Christians in communist China and Christians that are far more fervent for our faith than we are. What if he told us this? Do not be afraid of those things which you're about to suffer. Why? For indeed, the devil is about to throw some, not all of you, because there were people who capitulated their faith back then, some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation how long? Ten days. Ten periods of tribulation. Be faithful. How long? Until for eight days? For six days? Until I can't take it anymore? Until it becomes too painful for me to be a Christian? How long am I to be faithful? Until death. And what happens then? And I will give you the crown of life. You will become an overcomer. So what happens if we're not faithful until death? What happens if you capitulate your faith and deny Christ by your words and by your actions, by your fervency for him? What happens? Is there any wiggle room in his promises? Be faithful until death. He who endures to the end, we're going to be talking about that on Tuesday in the Olivet Discord, shall be saved. He that endures 80%, what about that guy? He that starts out really strong in his faith and just gives it up because it cost him a position at work or some of his friends turned against him or he just couldn't do the stuff that he wants to do. What happens then? What happens then? In our world right now, there's an average of 322 Christians that are killed for their faith each month. 322 Christians. They are shot. They are hacked to death with machetes. They are burned alive. They are suffering greatly in our world. 322 on an average killed for their faith. There are 214 churches. A lot of these in Sudan and areas that we don't really know about because that's those people way over there. 314 churches that are destroyed, or Christian property destroyed, on a, uh, on a monthly basis. You can go online and you can read stories about this. I was reading one, I was going to share with you, but I'm not. I was reading one about a, a young man, and uh, he was a young pastor of a church, small church, and uh, guy, these guys came in, these anti-Christian guys came in, and they doused him with gasoline, and they, they got ready to douse his wife with gasoline, and the wife ran out the back of the church, and before they could light the match and burn this pastor alive in his church, he was able to escape, and they burned the church down, and, you know, and he, what do you do then? I mean, we have churches on every single street corner, churches that sit empty, these massive edifices of Hundreds of millions of dollars spent that, that just sit empty except for a couple hours a day. And we don't even know what that's like. I mean, what, what would a Christian be like? What would your faith be like if all of a sudden somebody came in here and shot three or four of us or dragged some of us off to jail and said, if you meet again next Sunday, we're going to be here and take some more of you. Would you come? Would you come? Or if they just put a tax... You can worship anytime you want, but it's going to cost each person a hundred bucks. hundred bucks to come. 
You have to pay the government at the door to come in here. Would you come? Or would you just say, well, God, you pay that. That's part of my tithe. Or it's too expensive. I can't really do that. And it's, it's not worth it to me to gather with other believers. And what would you do? What would you do if some of your children were locked up because of their faith in Jesus Christ? I'm, I'm not going to show it to you today. But uh, there was a four or five minute video, I'll probably show it on Tuesday, of a man telling a story about a woman, a young 12-year-old girl in the, um, in the Sudan. And her father was a Muslim. And the girl came to faith in Jesus Christ, and the father beat her horrifically and locked her in a room and put her on a mat and said that you're not to leave this room until I come and get you at all. And uh, he, she said, but Dad, she says, no. She says, if you get off that mat, you're going to show me that you don't love Jesus. She stayed in that room for three months. Three months. The, uh, her brother came and pushed some water up under the door, and she was able to lap it up like a dog, and he would find some food and slowly slip it to her whenever the father was gone. She could have left the room at any time. He didn't lock her in there. He just kept her in there. Finally, some of the neighbors realized that she was missing, and so they asked about her, and the son told what the father had done. It was a Islamic father, and so the police came, and they rescued this girl who had just really pretty much withered down to nothing, and put her in a hospital and started rehabilitating her. And they asked her, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave when he was gone? Because my father said that if I get off this mat, I don't love Jesus. And I love Jesus enough to show him how important he is to me. Twelve-year-old girl. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you know anybody in America that has that kind of faith? Each month, there are 772 forms of violence committed against Christians. Rapes. Beatings, abductions, forced marriages. You should see some of these eight and nine year old girls that are in forced marriages. Mo knows about this. Forced marriages to, to men in their 50s. Nobody says anything about it. And they're done that because they're Christians. People suffering. And the church remains silent. We don't even talk about it. We don't even want to know about it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel convicted. The Lord exalted this church because they were struggling through trials and tribulations for their faith. Then the closing. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The promise to the overcomers. Again, note the order here. Prophetically, the letter to the church in Smyrna represents the persecuted church that suffered greatly under the ten great Roman persecutions. Remember, he said that you will suffer persecution ten days. Just so happened that there were ten institutional Roman persecutions against the church at that time. This time frame runs, again, from about A.D. 100 up to 312 when Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, or the Edict of Toleration, and basically ended church persecution that was accumulated by the Diocletian persecution that happened just 30 years before that. From AD 100 to 312. It says that you will have tribulation 10 days. I want you to watch this. First persecution, of course, was Nero. During Nero's persecution, Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. We know about that. The Domitian persecution took place a generation later. That's when John was exiled to Patmos. That's when John was allegedly boiled in oil. The Trajan persecution took place. It lasted 13, or 13 years. 
Ignatius was burned at the stake. Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of persecution, took place from 161 to 180 AD. That's when Polycarp was martyred. If you don't know these names, these are your church fathers. These are, these are people that, that we should know. We know Michael Jordan, and we know basketball players and football players, but as Christians, we should know who these people are. We have the service persecution. It took place for 11 years. Irenaeus, the church father, was killed during that time. You had the Maximinus persecution, the Dacius persecution, Valerian. We had the Diocletian persecution, which was the worst of all. And it only ended when Constantine took power and said, it stops now. And Constantine didn't do that because he was a believer. He did that for political expediency in his kingdom. So what's the report card for Smyrna? Well, the Lord only had good things to say about that church. Nothing bad. So Smyrna is the kind of church that we need to emulate. The kind of Christians that we need to be. Christians who suffer persecution. You ever suffered for your faith? Well, yeah, I, I remember, I remember my dad, my dad got really mad at me one day because I didn't ask him to come to church and he told me to never mention that in front of him again, so I haven't. And he's dead, dead, and he went to hell, but that was really rough persecution. I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. I wanted to tell my friends about Jesus and invite him to come to church or to Bible study or something of that nature. And they laughed at me and made fun of me and they wouldn't let me be in their group anymore. And so they weren't my friends anymore, like they were your friends in the first place. And so therefore I really suffered persecution. So I decided I didn't want to tell anybody about Jesus. I Maybe I lost a promotion or I lost a job. Okay, I got that. It's terrible. Anybody been popped in the face for your faith in Christ? Anybody been slapped? Been cussed at? Oh yeah, some wild person cussed at me really bad for, uh, for talking about Jesus, but, uh, I just don't hang around that person anymore because it just bothers me. I mean, come on. The Lord said that if we were going to be like Him, we would suffer like Him, but we choose not to be like Him because we don't want to suffer like Him. Anybody ever taken your possessions because of Christ? Denied you a meal? Taken your Kicked your family out of their house because of that? Anybody ever beat you with a stick or punched you in the face because of your faith? No. It's like Paul talked about. We haven't even got to the point of shedding blood for Jesus. And then we wonder why we're so apathetic and we're so afraid. This church was honored by Christ immensely because they didn't care. They suffered persecution. The Philadelphia church was honored by Christ because they didn't care. They sold their possessions with the great missionary movement and they went overseas because Jesus said, go into all the world, and they went. They didn't care. There were pastors and believers that had backbones. There were, there were men who were men. You haven't suffered for your faith. You ever wonder why? Why? Why is that? How do we in the West reconcile our relative ease? I mean, oh, I have to come to church today. I have to make a sacrifice. I, you know, get to drive eight miles and come to church and, you know, and okay, then I go home and I really sacrifice today for the Lord. And we wonder, wonder how we can live in, in such relative ease and reconcile our life with these verses. This is 2 Timothy. 
But you've carefully followed my doctrine, Timothy. You've lived like I lived. You've emulated me. You followed my teaching, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions. I'd really rather not do that. How about just your love and faith and purpose? No, no. It comes with the package. Your light in darkness. My afflictions which happened to me in Anconia, or Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. I endured them, Timothy, and, and you followed suit. And out of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, he says, here's the condition. All who desire to live godly in Christ promise will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It's almost like do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You know, don't, don't think it's going to work the other way around. If you desire to live godly in Christ, to be light in darkness, to, to view yourself as an ambassador of his, to everywhere you go, it's not your job and, and that you're there for. Everywhere you go, you go as an ambassador of him, and he happens to give you a job to give you more openings and to take care of your needs to be able to share your faith. You will suffer persecution. And if we're not suffering persecution... What does that mean about our desire to follow him? If, if this verse is true, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Is the reverse of that true also? That if you don't suffer persecution, then the condition's not being met? How about this verse? A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Jesus talking to his disciples. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. It's enough for you just to be like me. Well, if they've called me the master of the house, lord of the flies, bells above, and name for Satan, how much more will they call you members of his household? Has anybody done that to us? Does anybody even do that to the church at large today? Or are we too compromised to even have them care? Or this one. If anyone desires to come after me, now if I, uh, if I ask that question in here, how many people here desire to come after Jesus? We would all raise our hands. Okay. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means put you second. Think about you not first. Not think about your needs and your, your, your wants and, and you know, your possessions and just you, 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 you. It means about denying yourself. To what extent? And to take up his cross Every single day. The cross, the, the instrument of a painful, excruciating death. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, promise, will lose it. And whoever desires to lose his life for my sake, promise, will save it. And what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world, and yet he himself is destroyed or lost, or he loses his soul? I mean, how do we... How do we reconcile those? Now watch this. I'll draw it to a close. Here's the good news about this church. I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. But the Lord says, you don't understand, you are rich. You are rich in things that money can't buy. You're rich in faith. You're rich in love. You're rich in joy. You're rich in peace. You're rich in contentment. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that our Jews are not, but our synagogue of Satan. And you've stood against that. This church was poor 
in things, yet spiritually rich. And I look at us, and the Lord says we're exactly the opposite. We are filthy rich in things. Me too. This, this storage place up here is packed full of stuff. I don't even know what it is. Do you have stuff like that? We have garage sales, and we just have to declutter all our junk and all our stuff. And You realize that as you're moving. It's just stuff and stuff and stuff. And where's, our, where's our love and our joy and our faith and our peace? And where's, the, where's the power in us that when we walk into a room, the people there recognize that God in us is present around them? Where's the kind of fervency that allows us to pray, and when we pray, we can feel the the power of heaven just move inside of us. This is how the Lord described the church. He said nothing bad about. I know your poverty, but you don't understand how rich you are. And here's what he says about us today. To the church in Laodicea, I know your works, just like he knew their works, but our works are different. <laughs> that you are neither cold nor hot. You're not, either, you're not really for me, you're not really against me. You just don't care. You're just kind of in the middle. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, you make me sick. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how chilling that phrase is. This is the Lord talking about his church. And he's talking about the church age in which we live right now. The prevailing attitude of us right now that, that, are you pleased, God? No, I'm not pleased. I wish you were hot. Well, I kind of am. Really? Not according to the scripture, not according to other people, other church age. I'm, well, I'm, you know, it's just, I'm really busy. I got a lot of stuff to do. I've got, got all these things that I'm working on, these projects that are important. I got, I got to take care of my house and take care of my car, my kids and my vacation. I got stuff to do. Why, Lord, do you want to vomit the church out of its mouth, out of your mouth? Because you say, remember, the church in Smyrna said we are poor, and God says you are rich. The church in Laodicea says, I am rich. I don't need nothing. I have become wealthy, and I don't have need of anything, including you, God, nothing. And the Lord says to us, do you not know that from my vantage point you were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Now we have, we have all grown up in this church. We've all grown up in this church age. I have. And to be a Christian, the way I was taught, means you're faithful at church. You're faithful to come to church. And there's an element of, of your, you should be faithful to church where the body's meeting together to be a Christian. But that's all that's required of me. Faithful to church. If I show up and I tithe, I fund the machine, I show up and I tithe, then therefore I'm okay. I can live the most reprobate life out there and nobody will confront me and nobody will chastise me. Nobody will, nobody will ever kick me out of church. Nobody's ever going to practice church discipline in America today where you're living with a woman who's not your wife, and so therefore you either need to repent or you're gone. Nobody does that today because if this guy goes to another church, they're going to gladly accept it. 
They never contact his former pastor and said, why is this guy kicked out of fellowship? Well, he's been grossly moral sin and he's refused to repent and, and we brought him up and he refused and, oh, we don't care. Just come, come, come. Because this church over here ordains gay people and this church over here, the pastor's having an affair and this church over here, they drink like fish and this church over here shows R-rated movie clips in their worship service and this church over here is like this. Nobody speaks for Christ anymore. We've all grown up in this. We all have. That we just come and, and, you know, we have our little quiet relationship with Christ. And we've even, we've even made it easy for us by talking about your Jesus. Well, my Jesus doesn't want me to do that. Well, who in the world is your Jesus? Is your Jesus different than my Jesus? Is your Jesus different than this Jesus? It's not your Jesus. It's Jesus that we embrace on his terms and not ours. So what do we do? How do we become like the church in Smyrna? And you've heard this verse quoted a million times, especially around election time. This is a principle here, and it's a principle that still applies today, but I want you to see this a little bit differently. It simply says, if my people who are called by my name, and it lists a number of things they should do, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, that's the condition, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Watch this very carefully. If my people, those are God's people, this principle applies to God's people. It doesn't apply to lost people. It applies to you and me, the church. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, Lord, will your people humble themselves? Will will throw pride out? Will carry their cross daily? Will pray for each other? Will will humble themselves and pray and seek my face in worship and adoration? And if my people will turn from their wicked ways, this is not the wickedness of the world. This is the wickedness of God's people. It's, it's the church wickedness. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and if they will turn from there, my people's wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins the sins of the church, the sins of my people, and as a collateral blessing for the church becoming the true body of Christ, he will heal their land. But it begins with the church first. It begins with you and I first. I have, I have been praying for years for revival to take place somewhere, anywhere, here. I have been preaching with the uh, hope that if, if, I, if I preach the unadulterated word of God, if I, if I, if I just lay it out like it is, if we, if we take it on a personal level, if we're accountable to each other, that, that maybe things will change and revival will take place. And I, and I prayed for revival in my own life, and you get, you get taste of it, and then the world just beats it down. You ever been there? Ah. Oh. And then you get a taste of it, and then you tell other Christians about the revival you're experiencing, and then they beat it down because they don't want anybody in their midst with a revival. And God, we're running out of time. I mean, we're running out of time. There's a 
There's a judgment called God's judgment of abandonment that, that he lays out for us in Romans chapter 1, and we may even talk about that on Tuesday, that we're in the midst of right now. It's not that God's bringing these cataclysmic judgments against our nation right now to bring us back to faith, but he's abandoning our nation to their own sins, like he talks about in Romans 1. And he's moving his presence away, and he's letting us experience the consequences of our own actions, and every day the world gets worse and worse and worse. Have you noticed? We're running out of time. Our children that we raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord, when the world gets hold of them, they're gone. They do things we can't even imagine them doing. And how did that happen? Isn't the power of Christ strong enough? Yes, but not the power of the church. And we've mingled those two things together to the point that many of our children have our faith, and even we struggle with it. I read a report that said 60% of pastors admit to watching porn at least once a month. My gosh, how, how can God do anything unless it begins with us? Do you understand what I'm saying? With us. If my people, that's me and that's you, who are called by his name, called out of darkness, and set into light by his action, will humble themselves, throw pride away, it's not my need, it's not my desires, it's not about me, it's about you, God, it's about you. And pray, and in my praying, I'm seeking his face, I'm taking whatever time is necessary to worship him and to love him and adore him, to conform my life to the image of Christ, to have his mind, rather than trying to beat him down to have my mind. And if I will turn from my wicked ways, do this tonight. Go, go sit down, and have a quiet time with the Lord and simply pray this. God, if there's anything in my life that stands between me and a deeper relationship with you, show me and I will deal with it and he will load your plate up. With nothing, some of his little stuff. I mean, nothing major, little stuff. God, you know, that was, that was dishonest. I shouldn't have done that. I, you know, I shouldn't have, you're right, God, I'm, Please forgive me for that, or, or this, or my attitude towards this person. He will load you up. And you start doing the little ones, and then all of a sudden they get a little harder and a little harder. And when you stymie and stop, well, God, that's a little rough for me. What he does, at least is what he does in my life, he goes, we don't go any further. Why should I tell you to do something new when you haven't been faithful with what I've already told you to do? He treats me like we treat an employee, like we treat some of our kids. Hey, Dad, uh, I wasn't faithful in doing this for you. Give me something else to do. No, why don't you do that first? Once you're faithful in that, then I'll trust you with something bigger. Pray that tonight and see what God does. Pray it every night, every day, and begin to live that righteous, sanctified life that brings revival, that makes our faith seem like something the world wants rather than being just like everybody else. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and if my people will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal as a, as a collateral blessing their land. Ball's in all court, and I'm telling you, from the bottom of my heart, we're running out of time. The day of salvation is today. Let me pray.